I am unwilling to give up, that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out, knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control, control, control. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I'm so excited to have my next guest here. I'm a huge fan of this brand, and I had not met him uh, before, but I'm so excited to get to know Nick Stone a little bit more and hear all of the journey uh, behind this incredible brand called Bluestone Lane. Uh, So Nick, just to give you a little bit of an idea, once you hear him talk, he has a little bit of an accent. I guess I have an accent as well, Uh, but he's been living here for a little while. Uh, But he's an Aussie from Melbourne. Um, He reset the coffee scene, introducing New York City to the Australian-inspired cafe experience. And now with almost 65 locations across eight markets. Bluestone is committed to providing great cafe experiences, but a bit more that I'll let him jump in and and share a bit more about that. But I'm excited to hear more about Nick's overall journey. It's not a traditional one, which is sort of norm, I guess, for many of the guests that we have on this podcast. (laughs) It's never a straight line, as we like to uh, say. So, so anyway, let's get started and welcome Nick. Hi, Cara. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Very, very excited to have you here. So before we get into hearing about Bluestone Lane, the company that you founded and are running, can you share a bit more about your origins? So you are an Aussie, uh, but what were you doing? Yes, I'm from Melbourne, Australia, and uh, grew up grew up there Um and uh, I've had a couple of careers actually before launching Bluestone Lane. I, when I was finishing high school, I was selected yeah, into the Australian Football League, professional Indigenous football code there, the most popular football code in Australia. Played there for uh, did had six seasons, three different teams, uh, so a bit of a journeyman. And then I went to university at the same time, fortunately. Uh, so my career there started when I was seventeen. You get drafted out of high school typically, and then. Uh, went to university and luckily, and then went straight into investment banking, worked uh, in banking for 10 years. And uh, during that time, I had a chance to exchange with my MBA and, and I was trying to, to chase my girlfriend who became my wife, who got a, landed a job in New York City. And I was desperate to always work in New York. I was fascinated by New York City, the capital of the world, and just the diversity of industry and the multicultural melting pot it is. And, uh, you know, while I was there, I was just struck by how different the coffee culture was from what I was familiar with in Australia. And that was really a lot of the impetus to, to branch out a few, after a few years of sort of sitting on my hands and pondering whether I was actually going to do this or not, launched the first one in midtown Manhattan around the corner from where I was working. And, uh, yeah, here we are 10 years later. Were you looking to start a business? I mean, did you think that you would become an entrepreneur? 
Uh, well, both my parents had come from small business backgrounds, so I was familiar with with that as a part of my you know childhood environment. I always had done things in a, in a bit of an entrepreneurial way. I was never someone that would just also just focus on one thing. While I was at school, uh, I was focused also on trying to make it professionally in sport. And then when I was playing AFL, I was studying the same time. And when I finished uh, AFL, I was doing banking, but doing my master's degree. Then I did my MBA. Uh, so I was always juggling. And then the first three years of Bluestone, I was still working in finance. I didn't actually jump into full time until we had 12 locations. So it was in mid-2016. So we're already going for three years before I decided to take a one-year sabbatical to uh, to see what I could do as a full-time sort of founder CEO. But, um, you know, I think I've always just had this interest in learning and improving and uh, being part of teams. I love being part of teams, whether it's sport or in banking. You know, banking is very much a team environment. And then at Bluestone. So I think that just it's just a manifestation of that and it all came together. And um, this one was a clear one because the coffee culture in Australia is just so different. There's a whole host of sort of historical reasons. And then there's sort of practically like the way of life in Australia is is built around these moments of human connection. And I think Australians do that particularly well. They, they love socialising. Um, they love catching up, whether, whether it's at the pub or whether at the cafe. And that was something that I just noticed was quite different uh, in, the, in the States that going to a coffee shop was often to solve a need for a product, you know, solving a need for caffeine. I need to get my coffee to start me on the day. And everything was built around convenience and speed, particularly when you think that Starbucks and Dunkin' have Nearly seventy percent of all coffee shops are one or t- either either Starbucks or Dunkin'. So in Australia, the land of independence, where Starbucks failed and there is no Dunkin', it was just interesting to try and bring something different. And uh, I thought there might be more people like my wife and I that that are interested in high quality experience and certainly built around hospitality. And you know that was the catalyst. And here we are now. We just had our ten year anniversary actually last week. So from when the first store opened, so it's pretty cool. How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, 
Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of the Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for the Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. So when you talked about how the culture is so different in uh, cafes in Australia versus the U.S., and obviously the brands that you mentioned, are we're all familiar, familiar with those. 
Are you, how would you describe Bluestone Lane to somebody who has never visited one? And what are they going to, what do you hope as the founder and CEO that they're going to feel in that environment that maybe they're not going to be able to have experienced before? That's a great question. But ultimately for us, the North Star is for our customer to regard themselves as a local, that they feel like a local. Hmm. that they are part of our community. And I think that executing products, whether it is on the beverage side with our coffee, which is award-winning, we were the most awarded last year in the in the biggest US roasting competition. Uh, we won seven awards in the Golden Bean Award, or whether it's our food, which has really been a big part of this whole avocado toast movement. When we launched it 10 years ago, you know, avocado toast now is ubiquitous, but 10 years ago, we were a bit of a trailblazer with this thing. And, uh, you know, I think that, but ultimately, like, what makes me feel intrinsically so rewarded is when someone says that, that Bluestone just makes them feel good. It's a feeling. It's, it's a way in which they walk in and we know them. We acknowledge them. We recognize them. We know their name, face, and order. And that really comes from such a place of authenticity because in Melbourne uh, or in Australia, we were a tea-based drinking culture, heavily influenced by the British sort of colonial sort of way of life. And when we had mass migration pre and post World War II, particularly from Italians and Greeks, they brought their espresso coffee machine. So we have never had this drip coffee culture, you know, sitting on a big cup of joe. We've always been espresso. So we started drinking espresso coffee in the 40s and 50s where really espresso coffee only was commercialized in the U.S. in the late 80s, 90s through Starbucks. Mm-hmm. Starbucks were the catalyst of that. So for us, like, I, I love nothing more when our locals tell us that they just feel good, that someone brings a smile to their day, that they walk in and they feel better walking out. And in Australia where everyone has great espresso coffee, the only way to sustainably compete is to have those local base relationships, not to be a homogenous transactional customer, to be personalized, to be recognized where you're part of our community and, you know, we invest, we're hospitality led ultimately. And, and that's what I really think we, we need to be. And that's where I think that sustainably where we'll win and where we can be a big part of solving such a huge issue that Western societies are facing around loneliness and isolation and depression, which seems to be accelerating at levels that the world's never known. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously a lot of that is to do with this obsession with having uh, digital connectivity, uh, disintermediating human connection. So that's a big thing for us. And so what type of ways do you, beyond being open and having avocado toast and all these things that are yummy and and wonderful. How do you create that connection when people are coming in? Well, I think I think there's a couple of key things in in hospitality, and this was my first hospitality experience. So my first rodeo, uh, I'd never worked in the industry, uh, so very much is shaped by a customer centricity. I look at look at it through the lens of a customer and then I overlay it with my experience in being part of high performance teams and also working in you know corporate finance for 10 years. The the true way hospitality businesses compete and differentiate 
their intellectual property ultimately is their culture. It is not a recipe. You know, anyone can eventually learn how to make great coffee or make a great dish. You know, it's linear. You know, mm-hmm. you, you follow the recipe, you get the right cooking equipment, you get the right ingredients, like you're going to figure it out. But the culture is the true point of intellectual property. And it's how your team assimilate. It's how they align behind the values. So ultimately for Bluestone, there's a couple of things that we're really deliberate around. We're really deliberate around how we hire, how we train, how we induct, and the expectations on the steps of service, which are those key crucible moments where you make a local feel really good. The second point outside of that is really creating these environments that foster that connection. In our cafe, we have two concepts. We have coffee shops that's really built more around convenience for a captive audience. They were really focused on being in the bottom of office lobbies. Now, that business has been rather disrupted through the the outcomes of COVID. But the cafe side of the business is more focused on residential areas. 90% of the dining transactions in that side of the business are two or more people. So what we're doing is we're creating these moments for people to come together and we actually refer to it as an affordable luxury experience where they come in and the music, the lighting, the smells, everything, the service is just on point. So for us, we focus heavily on those two elements, but nothing nothing will disintermediate the way that one of our teammates make you feel. You will always remember great service. You, you might not always remember a great coffee. And in fact, you'll forgive a bad coffee when the service is really memorable. And for us, that again comes from that point of in Australia, coffee and great quality espresso coffee is a ticket to play. Mm-hmm. It doesn't, it's not a winning strategy. Really, it's about fostering those local relationships, which is led through the execution of the service piece that matters the most. How much has your business changed in in terms of your overall offering? You obviously hadn't been in this industry before. So uh, as you said, it's your first, I think you said your first rodeo. So in, in this business, in hospitality, how has it changed? And like, I always, I'll put part two of this question. I always hear from entrepreneurs at, at what point can they walk away from their business, right? And yeah. and not manage it anymore. And it sounds just as you were speaking a few minutes ago, it sounds like you think about this stuff a lot. You think about community, you think about how people are engaging in your stores, you think about the music, all the little details. It's it's all really important. And and so I'm so curious how it's changed since the beginning versus um, to now. Well, it's it's essential if you want to scale. If you want to scale a proposition, you have to have all of those intangible elements in a playbook because mm-hmm. how do you scale, scale culture unless you have your values so clearly defined, who we are, what we want to be, who our core customer is, what our value proposition is. So we also need to continually focus on improvement because the way that we position our business as a premium brand, we're trying to achieve this concept of boutique at scale. Mm -hmm. So we need to spend an enormous amount of time assessing and self-reflecting on how we're doing, how we're executing. Are we delivering into that premium uh, proposition, into that value prop? 
So, you know, how much has changed from, from when we started 10 years ago? Just enormously. I think mm-hmm. it, at the start, it's really about, you know, proof of concept and, and getting those early adopters in there. And uh, we are very much focused just on one geography and, and one city. And in fact, one borough within the city, Manhattan. Uh, so for us, you know, we started off with two coffee shops, one in Midtown Manhattan, around the corner from where I worked. I was in 270 Park Avenue. We put this location a couple of blocks up on 3rd. The second store was on at 30 Broad Street, so next to the Stock Exchange, right down in the financial district, 75-year-old building that had never had a retail amenity before in its lobby. And then about a year uh, on the 12th year, uh, 12-month anniversary of the first location, we opened our first cafe that brought a proposition in West Village on the corner of Greenwich Avenue and Perry Street, which was one block south of where um, my wife and I were living. And that was the huge sort of brand driver for us. That was, I think, that broader proposition introduced Bluestone onto the stage, certainly in New York City, and, and the adoption was immediate. And it was in the right spot. You had the great balance between those West Village residents that often had an artistic bent or were young and hungry and driven and chasing a dream and really ambitious. And then you had this tourist overlay that was strolling up through Bleecker Street, through the tree-lined streets of West Village. Like, it's a pretty iconic place mm-hmm. and uh, really special to to Alexander and I. And, and you know, I think that as you continue to evolve, you just got to keep learning. But then, you know, you have arguably probably the hardest period in hospitality hi- history or one of the hardest in the last 100 years, COVID, which effectively sh- shut our business down we faced an existential crisis where we had to make decisions at such a timely manner. We we didn't have a month to sort this out. We didn't have three weeks. You had about a week to work out what we're going to do to protect our team, to comply with law, to be safe, but for the business to survive. And, and uh, those lessons and then coming out of COVID considering, you know, we're really sort of only like 15 months out of COVID finished because Omicron only finished March last year. Mm-hmm. It's, right. it's crazy when you think about that. Uh, you know, we've, we now have to pivot with this transformational change in how people work and how they live. And, uh, you know, you couldn't have told me three years ago that the majority, the vast majority of businesses would now allow you to work at least two days a week at home. Uh I just would have said there's no way. It's too extreme. It'll take us two decades to get there. And now you know, we're dealing with that. And then obviously when you sign long-term, long-term leases, you have a ton of flexibility when you spend a lot of money on building out of stores. It's just not easy to jump from, oh, yeah, being in the bottom of that office building to suddenly I want to be in that suburb because that's where people are spending their time. It take, it, you know, It's an evolution and you need to be patient and you need to be still conscious of the capital investment and, you know, so all of these things have been extraordinary in trying to just to navigate and learn, but they've been wonderful. And uh, I think that one of the big advantages we have is the fact that I didn't come from the industry. So mm-hmm. I would look at things with a completely objective lens. I didn't have this um, premeditated assumption that it has to be this way, that you have to, you have to do this, you have to follow this playbook. It was like, no, with that customer centricity lens, with the financial discipline, and ultimately this obsession with building a lifestyle brand, 
that's, uh, you know, I think that we've used that to our advantage and I haven't been constrained by some of the rules um, in that maybe others uh, follow. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think so often, especially when it's your first entrepreneurial venture, you, I bet you wanted to talk to people who had worked at Starbucks or, you know, and <laughs> get, they could wave their magic wand and solve all of your problems for you. And the reality is, is that, there aren't very many people who can actually do that for you. I, I would, would you agree? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That you just I have think, to um, kind of think Hoffman, about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, Reed Hoffman says this amazing thing that he, I remember reading it in, in a, a listing in a podcast or reading a magazine. He said, um, no one owns a good idea. Execution's everything. Yeah. And I feel that with Bluestone, like a lot of people have this idea of premium coffee and great food and, Delivered in a, in a really sort of sincere, service-led way, you know, it like makes practical sense and linear, and you put the building blocks together and you can open. But execution is everything, like really, and and like so many ideas are, are, are actually, frankly, not like particularly innovative. They're just a riff off something else. It's just this constant evolution. You know, there's there's very few technologies that are really like game changing. It's just like everyone iterating off someone else and. Uh, but the execution is the difference. You know, that's how it gets done. Um, and execution is so hard. Yeah. And that's where the tenacity and the discipline and the resilience comes through. Early on, there's a bit of euphoria. There's also very limited downside to a degree. It's sort of like you don't have high expectations. You're sort of just pushing and learning. And there's a lot of people that are just giving you pats on the back and saying, that's great. But I think when you start employing a lot of people and you have real customers, you've got to deliver into that. That's when the execution really matters. And that's where you see who can, who's a, who is actually a leader, like who actually has the business acumen to, to get through this, who can have the humility to say, I don't know this or I'm learning about this and I need someone to help me here. And to also have that gut instinct to know that when they pull people in that they can provide service, but maybe they're not going to be here for longer than a year or two years and that you just need to understand that the company life cycle is constantly changing and there's going to be some hard decisions and those things often at time are uncomfortable and, you know, they're, they're not great, but you, you need to make it and, and this is part of your fiduciary duty to keep the, keep the company going, keep it delivering and how, give it the best chance to to reach its potential for the betterment of the whole. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, nothing beats execution. And that's my biggest thing I always sort of look at. I always get, you know, you, you're probably similar, Kari. Like I get asked a lot to either invest alongside, you know, entrepreneurs or to be on an advisory board or just to take, you know, catch up with me and have a coffee. And, you know, I, I think the biggest thing I'm looking for is like people who have shown over time that they can, whether it's starting a business or whether it's just like doing something that takes a lot of effort, like learning an instrument or running a marathon or, you know, that they really wanted to save this amount of money when they were a kid because they wanted to travel around the world. Like those, those little signals matter a lot to me. And I think there's some really common traits there from, from what I've you know seen over in my professional career thus far. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you say that. I, I, frequently, not always, but frequently look at athletes. I wasn't a professional athlete, but uh, but 
was a gymnast through high school. And, uh, you know, I, I still joke to this day that my mom would be waiting out in the car to pick me up. Uh, and I, I never left the gym on after a perceived failure by me, right? Like I would sit there and do round off back handsprings or whatever I was doing and get it right. Like I, and sometimes she would sit there for hours and I would, I was so determined, (laughs) right. That I could not leave. And I think there's this, there's this resilience, this, um, mental state where you're, you just, you have to get it right. Right. And I think that that is the key thing that I see in entrepreneurs that I look for to your point when I'm meeting them is, is just absolutely key. And sometimes you get to learn that when you're growing up an athlete and sometimes you don't, but there's something else about it that Matt Higgins, I think is a, is another great example. Somebody who's been, who's one of your investors, who is, um, you know, somebody who's just really shown the scrappiness, but showing their ability to get back up again is, is super key. Yeah. I think sport is just such a great equalizer Mm -hmm. that it, you know, it brings, and it brings such amazing camaraderie uh, through time together. You have to train a lot. You have to, you just have to commit and dedicate a lot. And you don't, it's not about, you know, do I, do I radi- radiate or resonate with professionals like the highest level athletes the most? I, not really. I think it's like what's great about sport or fitness or what have you is just the dedication and commitment. And whether you become a professional or varsity player or college athlete, it doesn't really matter. It's just the commitment, the discipline and the learnings that you get. And also you know, to get better in sport or to be fitter, it does require a level of pain tolerance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these things like starting a small business, starting a, a business that is that has ambitions, you got to be able to suffer a fair degree of setback and just uncertainty and just challenge like every day. Mm-hmm. It's just not that wake up and you've got a unicorn. And it's just like you think on the ma- you read in the magazines or listen to podcasts, and it's like you know I'm just going to do it, and you know suddenly it's going to be worth 100 million or 10 million or a billion. It's just not what happens, you know. And uh, for the vast majority of people, I'm, I'm sure there's there's always uh, a couple of lucky ones out there. But you know, I think that that's what's great. Like I was, I was a good Australian rules footballer, and I was a good um, athlete on a couple of other sports. But, you know, was I the best and was I Olympic level? No. But um, being a professional or just trying to achieve a certain level taught me an enormous amount my, um, myself and the discipline and the time management and the sacrifices you, know, you had to make. You know, when people finish high school in Australia, you know, people are going to schoolies, which is the end of year break. And because you can pretty much do anything you want once you turn 18, uh, you know, everyone finishes schools and goes partying and that's a great time. You know, I, I was, I was drafted before I even finished my, uh, final year exams, you know? So mm. for me, uh, I'm not, I'm not doing that. Now that was a minor sort of sacrifice, but that's just how it evolved. And it's, but it happened at 17. And I think when you have to pay the price and when it's really tough, 
you can pull, you can draw back from. You realize that you know it's never never as good or it's never as bad as you um, you may think it is at the time, and you know you might regard it as an enormous sacrifice. But those things do add up, and hopefully, if you're making the right choices and you're investing your time thoughtfully with the right team, you can achieve a lot. And Bluestone is a function of that again, as a pure outsider to this industry, and uh, you know in a foreign country. With a different sort of type of coffee culture, we've been able to, you know, pave our own way and and to handle things like COVID, which, which were just extraordinarily complicated and challenging if you were in retail or hospitality. You know, just extraordinary. Looking back at that time, if you had to name one piece that that uh, obviously cafes were closing, your whole ethos of your company was built bringing in people and community and that shifted. But how did you pivot quickly to be able to really stay alive and and also have a sustainable business? So I think that there's a couple of key lessons I reflected upon and one of the one of the critical ones was we had already started to plan we had a plan of what we were going to do if this eventuated to be as bad as people were stating and what we'd read in China and in Italy. And Italy sort of predated what ha- what mm-hmm. eventually ended up happening to sort of ground zero in the US, which was New York City. Um, so we'd mapped out these four phases and I remember about a week before it sort of all fell apart, we'd started to implement phase two. Uh, within a 48 hours, we we're on this new phase five. And I think what's, what saved us is we were really, really decisive and we made big decisions that had big consequences out of the gate. We weren't going to iterate. And I think I had an enormous amount of like guidance and support from a couple of members of the board that were like, Nick, just you should go really hard here. You should get in front of this because this doesn't look good and like, no one really knows what's going to happen. And so for us, like, it was really about trying to manage the fixed cost base and it was about managing the team. And there was enormous repercussions from it effectively terminating 85% of your team on two Zoom calls. You know, it, it's awful. Wow. It's absolutely awful. But what we did is it, 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 I had a duty to save the company because that gives me the best chance to rehire them again. Mm-hmm. And... uh for us, like that's what I made, like big decisions that had big impact um, that could help the company dramatically. And and my I said sort of key priorities. It was to save the company and try and support our team as much as possible. So by making this decision now, I was able to pay severance. And then I was able to move everyone on to this enhanced unemployment benefit, which we didn't know was happening when mm-hmm. we made this decision. But it meant that like the vast majority of our team sort of bridged into something. So economically they were sort of pretty much indifferent. So that worked out really well, but it gave us a chance to save the company, keep a few stores open that gave our community a sense of hope that they could leave their apartment and get a coffee through a window that we could fuel healthcare heroes and first responders, which were honestly working harder than they probably ever worked in their entire life. Uh, and, you know, we could preserve some jobs. Uh, you know, fifteen percent of the team, twenty percent of the team. So that was that was what we made, and it was the it was really the right call. Like that's probably the best period I've ever been as CEO. 
I think that 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 those sort of two years sort of navigating and then surviving, we didn't take in on any capital. So we didn't have an emergency a capital raise that was really dilutive. I, and at that point in time, it would have been extremely hard to raise capital because no one knew where the floor was. So it, um, you know, it just, it just worked. But I think taking the, taking a, a more passive response meant you could have got stuck in the middle, you know, and for us, we, I just had to save the company, had to sort of save the cash flow to at least bridge us for 12, 18 months. And I just thought if it's as bad as this, there's just no way that we're going to be left out to dry for 18 months. Like there's going to be a level of government assistance or support or, uh, you know, there's got to be something. Like it's it's just too, it's, it'd be too devastating for the world economy. Um, so that's what we did and and that's what worked out. And, uh, you know, you, you're making decisions on things that you would just never have thought would be possible. Mm-hmm. Like you're just mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, firing one person off, letting go five people is hard, like a hard day. But then like letting go hundreds of people all at once, you yeah. think it's, oh, it's torture. But, you know, it's nothing to brag about whatsoever. It's not a good thing. But you suddenly, when you're faced with the, you know, there's a binary outcome, you either do it or you don't. And like if you do this, this is the potential benefit. This is the con. If you don't, this is the potential benefit. This is the con, and you make that assessment as best you can, and then, you know, you 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 just have to act on it, and that's what we did. Yeah. If you look back now, was there a piece of your business that changed significantly? I'll I'll give you an example for Hint. We we actually had uh, we were going into some major retailers, Sam's Club and Walmart, right before uh, COVID hit. And in order to make sure that we were going to be able to keep up with the demand because we had Target and a few other big retailers that we were also trying to fulfill. I mean, our volumes were going to be going up substantially with these new retailers. We automated our plants. And then when we got into COVID, uh, we had this automation that was working Um amazingly well. Uh, and we were an essential product, uh, water, all the shelves were bare in stores. Uh, Costco called us right as, uh, COVID was hitting. And they said a lot of our manufacturers actually get some of their components in Asia. The plants are shut down or Europe glass bottles. Uh, and so we understand that you do everything in the U S. Um, is there any way that you could take this on? Anyone in their right mind would say, you are crazy to take on Walmart, Sam's Club, Costco within a six-month period, and you will fail. And we did it. We, like, it killed us, uh, but we did it. And we did it primarily because of a decision that we had made, not really during COVID, but it changed our business significantly where our plants were a lot of our plants and components of our plants were automated. And so I think in some ways, we just didn't know how much of a piece of that would be uh, essential for our overall business. And I'm curious if there's one piece that really started during COVID that you thought, obviously, you you guys were in the bottoms of uh, many office buildings, but um, and maybe it's maybe you did say the cafes. I mean that business yeah. is a lot more of your business as well. But is there anything else that really came out of COVID that 
really changed your business? Uh, Absolutely. I think three big things. First of all, it accelerated our digital, digital experience and the amount of investment into digital infrastructure massively. We had a small loyalty database uh, you know, where you know, sales from our loyalty database were under 5% or digital sales were under 5%. Um, and the loyalty was built around digital. You know, we went to 100%. We were at 92% for like two years after that. So the database went from about 30,000 people to right now 1.1 million. Amazing. So, so, you know, we went from, I don't know, 5,000 downloads of our app to now I think we've had 346,000 downloads of our app. So that was massive. And then just the business to understand the power of loyalty and uh, data science and have a data warehouse and just more effective way to market and reward and to get those insights, that was truly transformational for us. Secondly, we didn't do any delivery. Delivery was nothing in our business, you know. We... We always thought coffee delivery and avocado toast, you know, it might be yeah. hard. Then we started doing delivery and now delivery got to like 60% of the business and now it is sustainably between 20 and 30%. Like that is that is it and that's the way people – and we, because of our food mix, it's great. Delivery works well for us. Um, it's amazing. creative. So that was huge. Um, and then thirdly, the real estate, I think you pointed upon, like we were, we're pretty much sort of – balanced i would say 50 50 revenue contribution between coffee shops and cafes but the average unit volume of coffee shops is materially lower so we had a lot more a number of units versus cafes um in, in the coffee shops so what it did is it accelerated a push to suddenly the suburbs we only had one suburban location so 51 stores one in the suburbs uh when COVID hit so that just reorientated our focus dramatically to focus on these sort of commuter towns and suburbs and to lead with the cafe product. And that is where, that's where we're seeing tremendous benefit now. So I think that we saw early that people are going to spend more time at home, that these cafes, which are focused on residential areas, which had been really fueled by family brunches and brunch catch-ups on the weekend, we're now going to be busy on Mondays, Fridays, Saturdays and Sundays. So, and they are larger, so they can service delivery because they've got, you know, bigger kitchens and things like that. They have more capacity for throughput. So those three unlocks were massive and we as a business have benefited tremendously. And we, you know, that, that the analogy of like, don't waste a crisis, you know, optimize for a great outcome. Like that's what COVID, there's been a lot of negatives, but there's been some big positives. And for us, like, you know, the key was to try and stay in the game and have enough liquidity and capital to keep dancing and keep moving and, and having that agility. And we're really fortunate that because we reduced the cost base, because I had to get the business profitable, we had to be really thoughtful about it. And we had a lot of support, like particularly from our landlords. And they support us because they believed in our concept. They believed in our brand. They saw we were great in amenity. They liked the way we operated. Uh, then they were willing to support us. That enabled us to sort of keep pivoting and then to redeploy capital in these new ways, the future for Bluestone. And, uh, you know, we've basically had now just on 12 months of clean um, clean air to, to get the business. And last year we grew, you know, year on year, nearly 50%, you know, top line. That's incredible. So uh, it... You know, it's funny how at the time it looks like it was just, you know, a traumatic decision and awful, but there's so many silver linings. And even in the depths of COVID, 
I, you know, I remember speaking to my closest inner circle, my parents and my in-laws and obviously my brother who runs all marketing and branding at Bluestone and then my wife who's the de facto shadow co-founder. And they were all, they sort of were all very optimistic that there's, there's something that's going to come from this and even at the time it might be you know, awful. There will be silver linings. You'll learn. If you keep looking for them, you'll find one. Keep, mm-hmm. look, keep innovating. And that is the entrepreneurial entrepreneur's dream. That is actually the entrepreneur's um, uh, path. That's what happens. You just think it's all going great. And you're going to get you're going to walk into something really bad that you have a blind spot and things are just going to go wrong. So you just got to keep moving forward, positivity, assume good intent, and you know, trust those who you who you really feel like. If I was on my deathbed, or if I had to make this like really significant decision, like who would I go to? You got to you got to have that support network, and I feel so fortunate and blessed that I've got these people around me, and and I've had a number of business mentors that have just been extraordinary too. But I'll speak to you frankly, with humility, and they'll tell you between the eyes exactly what's going on. And sometimes it's it's hard to hear, but that also is a big part of the Australian culture to keep it real. To, yeah. to humility is probably the most respected value there, and. Uh, you know, just to be brutally honest, even if it if it hurts, sometimes you know, the, if you assume good intent, they're telling you it because there's probably something to learn from it. That's incredible wisdom. Well, thank you so much, Nick, for coming on. Nick Stone, founder and CEO of Bluestone Lane. So, thank you again. Thanks, Cara. Thanks again for listening to the Kara Golden Show. If you would please give us a review and feel free to share this podcast with others who would benefit. And of course, feel free to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of our podcast. Just a reminder that I can be found on all platforms at Kara Golden. And if you want to hear more about my journey, I hope you will have a listen or pick up a copy of my book, Undaunted, which I share my journey, including founding and building Hint. We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And thanks everyone for listening. Have a great rest of the week and 2023 and goodbye for now. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening.